Okay, uh, welcome to the, the second of Hartfield's uh, lectures on uh, logic, normativity, and rational advisability. And just to remind you that there, there is a, an informal discussion um, on Monday from 2 to 3 in the it's a lecture room, is it? Up, up, uh, it, and, it was last week. I yeah, don't know. If I, I, it will be this, this okay. weekend. Yeah, in the lecture room in 10 Lutton Street on the, on the lectures. Okay, thanks. Um, okay, so I, I've uh, had a handout made up. The first side is just the, the uh, puzzle from last time, which I won't review, but, uh, but uh, just so, uh, to, to relate today is to it. We're um, uh, talking more or less about uh, claim three from that puzzle. Um, so um, uh, the other other side of the handout is is uh, is uh, uh, more or less of a guide through uh, what I'll be through part of what I'll be doing today. Um, there's a mistake in my formulation of W, which I hope I will remember to correct um, when we get to it. Um, okay, so. This slide I had last time. Uh, uh, so um, Harmon argues that it's impossible to spell out a believable connection between logic and rational belief for various reasons. And he argues for a view of logic that doesn't need one, namely that logic is the science of what preserves truth by logical necessity. And if this was right, it would make the issue about revising logic much easier because logic would be just like a normal theory uh, and would be revised in pretty much the same way as other theories are. I mean, we just revise our views as to what preserves truth. Um, but I think that it, it, it is not right. Uh, and I'm going to both, in part two of the lecture, um, um, argue that the view of logic as the science of what preserves truth by logical necessity can be uh, pretty decisively shown wrong. Um, and that means that there's no other even initially plausible alternative to the view that there's a special normative role for logic. And then in part one, uh, I, I, I will uh, uh, um, uh, try to... Uh, uh, overcome his objections to there being such a, a believable connection. Um, however, um, I, I realize I have a little too much material, um, and I'm afraid I'm not really going to get to very much of part two, though I will try to. Uh, but so, in case I didn't, I thought I should I should give you a little snippet of part two before doing part one. Um, um, so. So if, if I'm right that validity isn't to be defined in terms of necessary truth preservation, uh, how is it to be understood? Uh, so my view is that we should take it as a, as a primitive notion which governs our inferential and other epistemic practices uh, in a way that I will be spelling out. Um, um, but uh, I want to... The snippet of part two I'm going to be doing is explaining why 
it's natural to think that validity coincides with the necessary truth of preservation. So, um, so I, I'm uh, I'm going to be taking uh, uh, validity here as a primitive notion, but. Um, Um, oh, it's not. Oh, can people hear me? Um, well, people can hear it without it. Then I probably was supposed to do something to turn it on. But aha. <laughs> So, so can, can consider these four claims. Um, first is that the, the inference from P1 through Pn is valid. The second is that the inference from P1 is true through Pn is true to Q is true is also valid. Now that seems on its face as if it ought to be sort of equivalent to the first one. I mean, it certainly is by the usual truth rules that allow us to pass from from P to true of P and vice versa. Um, now consider claim three, that the inference from true of P1 and dot, 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 and true of Pn to true of Q is valid. That seems like it ought to be equivalent to claim two. And, and of course, it is by the usual rules for conjunction. And then the final one is that the sentence... If true of P1 and blah, 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 and true of Pn, then uh, true of Q. Um, that That's valid. And again, this is equivalent to the third one uh, by the usual rules of the conditional. Um, so one through four are equivalent according to the usual rules. But the fourth one is, um, I mean, to say that a sentence is valid uh, is to say that it's uh, necessarily true by virtue of form. So 4 says that the inference necessarily preserves truth. So we've gotten from the claim that the inference is valid to the claim that, the, uh, that, that it preserves truth. Um, and and they seem equivalent in both directions. So this argument looks very persuasive. The problem is that it turns on principles that can't be jointly accepted. In particular, the principles about truth, getting from one to two, and the principles about the conditional, getting from three to four, are jointly inconsistent by a well-known paradox called the Curry Paradox, which I uh, will not take the time to talk about now, but I uh, probably will next time. So, so in, in particular, the paradox shows... Oh, well, I've already said that. Uh, so so my, own, my own view is that the, uh, um, the problem uh, that... that that what should be given up when we uh, uh, deal with the Curry paradox is the inference from three to four. Uh, so the so on my own view, 
uh, claims one through three are all equivalent. Claim four implies claim three, but not vice versa. Uh, that's just my own view. There are different views on how the Curry paradox is to be resolved, but every one of them at least undermines the argument that 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 validity is to be identified with necessary truth preservation. And in fact, virtually all of them um, uh, undermine the argument that uh, from one to four. Uh, some of them also undermine the argument from four to one, but but virtually all of them undermine the argument from one to four. And in a sense, they not only undermine the argument, they undermine the identification itself. I mean, here one has to be a little careful because one can always stipulate that valid is just a mean necessary truth preservation, but that's not particularly interesting, I think, because that notion of validity isn't what underwrites our notion of goodness in deductive argument. Uh, uh, validity in that sense isn't even extensionally equivalent to goodness of deductive ar- argument. Um, so that's the claim. I will illustrate this more fully next time. Um, but, um, but anyway... The conclusion is that our notion of good argument is an essentially normative notion, not capturable even extensionally in terms of necessary truth preservation. And that's the sense in which I'm going to be claiming that logic is essentially normative. All right, so that was a snippet of part two. Now we'll go back to the proper order of things to part one. Um, The problems that Harmon has raised for uh, taking logic to be a normative notion. So I think uh, he has four main problems. Um, I'll actually be actually extending the list a little bit. But, but um, uh, the first of his problems is that reasoning doesn't follow the uh, uh, pattern of logical consequence because if you have beliefs A1 through AN and realize that they together entail B, then sometimes the best thing to do isn't to believe B, but to drop one of A1 through AN. I mean, he makes a very big deal out of this. I, I don't think it's a particularly interesting problem, but, um, but, but I did want to mention it. The, the second is that we shouldn't clutter up our minds with irrelevancies, but we'd have to if whenever we believed A, we believed all its consequences. Third is that it's sometimes rational to have beliefs even while knowing that they are jointly inconsistent, if one doesn't know how the inconsistency is to be avoided. And the fourth is that nobody can recognize all the consequences of their beliefs. Because of that, it's absurd to demand that one's beliefs be uh, closed under consequence. And, and for a similar reason, it's absurd to demand that one's beliefs be, in, uh, be con- consistent. I mean, one might not be able to see the inconsistency. Um, not, I think the third and fourth are the most of most interest, but um, actually they all interact. All right, so the first one I can deal with very briefly. Um, the first one, remember, was when one has beliefs A1 through AN and realizes that they entail B, 
Sometimes the best thing isn't to believe B, but to drop one of, the, of A1 through AN. And here, the, I think this just shows that the required principle is one in which the term ought has wide scope. That is, one shouldn't think of the principle as the first indented thing up there on the overhead. Uh, rather, the, one should think of it as the thing that's marked star. If one realizes that A1 through AN together entail B, then one ought to see to it that if one believes A1 through AN, then one believes B. So problem one is really not a problem. Um, let me now go to, a, to one aspect of problem four. Um, so there's a question as to whether one should strengthen star by weakening the antecedent from if one realizes that A1 through AN together entail B to just if A1 through AN uh, together entail B. So just to have it up on the overhead, I've repeated it with the op- optional thing in there. And um, so this principle would show a lot more of a bearing of logic on rational belief in in, in the strengthened form in which the one realizes that it's dropped. And let me quote from an unpublished paper by John McFarlane. Um, He says, if the only normative claims that logic imposes are from known implications, then the more ignorant we are of what follows logically from what, the freer we are to believe whatever we please, however logically incoherent it is. But this looks backward. We seek logical knowledge so that we know how we ought to revise our beliefs, not just how we will be obligated to revise them once we acquire this logical knowledge, but how we're obligated to revise them even now in our state of ignorance. Now, I think this this seems uh, fairly convincing, and it's an argument for dropping the if one uh, uh, realizes that. But of course there's a problem, and that's the problem that I originally raised as problem four. The problem is that uh, believing all the logical consequences of one's beliefs is simply not humanly possible, so failure to do so can hardly be declared irrational. And for similar reasons, the idea that it's always irrational to be inconsistent seems absurd. I mean, it seems to me that uh, any rational person would have believed it impossible to construct a continuous function mapping the unit interval on to the unit square until uh, Piano came up with a uh, famous proof about how to do it. Um, uh, so the belief that no such function could exist was eminently rational but inconsistent. And, and there are, are many more examples of a, a similar nature. So as an interim solution, let's take the principle to be if A1 through AN together obviously entail B, then one ought to see to it that if A1 through AN if one believes the premises, one one believes the conclusion. I mean, this is apt to seem like a bit of a cheat, um, um, but let's come back to that. First of all, uh, 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 or, or next of all, let me turn to problem three. Um, th- 
one can knowingly have inconsistent beliefs and it's perfectly rational to do so sometimes. A famous example is the paradox of the preface, which probably everybody knows, but you say in the preface of your book that probably you've made a mistake somewhere in in the book. But, of course, that amounts to the disjunction of negations of claim in the book, so it's inconsistent with what's in the book. Uh, And there are more interesting examples. I mean, I think, um, well, one can debate about the details, but... but, uh, uh, um, interesting physical theories uh, typically have some kinds of in- inconsistencies in them. I mean, I think of the, the self-energy problem in classical electrodynamics. Uh, and uh, so for each claim in the theory, one can reasonably believe it. Um, um, one thinks it's probably right, but one knows they can't all be right. So it seems like a perfectly rational attitude, and fortunately it's licensed by Bayesian views. Uh, think of belief as just having a degree of belief over a certain threshold, then um, um, one can have a high degree of belief in each of A1 through AN, but not in their conjunction, or in some kind of detail by their conjunction. Um, so, while examples like this do create a problem for what I was calling star, it seems at first blush obvious how to fix it, which is one should replace if one believes A1 through AN by if one believes their conjunction. Uh, this is what I have wrong on the handout. In I, I, I had you replace the wrong list by the conjunction. But anyway, this is what it should be. Um, um, so that's a, a W on the handout. Or to put it as, in a slightly more general form, in terms of degree of belief, uh, W star, or, or W plus, I guess it is, uh, if A1 through AN together obviously entail B, then one's degree of belief in B should be at least as high as one's degree of belief in the conjunction. Now, the problem is that this is excessively weak for two reasons. Um, actually, they're somewhat related, but um, let me do them separately. Um, so the first reason is that the force of AND introduction as an inference rule is completely lost. Uh, so, and in, in the introduction ought to be a substantive constraint on our degrees of belief. For instance, if one believes A1 to degree 1 and A2 to degree 1, one should believe their conjunction to degree 1. And, and also, if one believes each conjunct to degree, say, 0.9, then one should believe the conjunction to at least degree 0.8. Um, but W plus only tells us that the degree of belief in the conjunction should be at least as high as itself, which isn't terrifically helpful information. Um, and, and, and the second problem, which as I say is somewhat related, is that people don't have degrees of belief in everything. 
And I think a principle governing a person's degrees of belief ought to be understood as having the tacit assumption that the person has all the degrees of belief in question. Um, For instance, a person can have high degrees of belief in A in an A horseshoe B, but not have any degree of belief whatever in their conjunction. Um, But in that case, W and W plus allow very high degrees of belief in in A and an A horseshoe B, while at the same time having extremely low degree of belief in B, uh, because there's no belief in the conjunction there to constrain the degree of belief in B. All right, so here's how to handle the problem simultaneously. Um, it's D. Uh, if A1 through A and together obviously entail B, then one ought to see to it that one's degree of belief in B is at least as high as the sum of the degrees of belief in A1 through AN minus N minus 1. Okay, so the, the N equals 0 case here just says that if B is an obvious logical truth, the degree of belief in B should be 1. The N equals 1 case just says that if A obviously entails B, one's degree of belief in B should be at least that of A. And the uh, N equals 2 case says that if uh, A1 through A, A1 and A2 obviously entail B, then the degree of belief in B should be the sum of A1 and A2 minus 1. Uh, 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 should be at, 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 at least that. And that's what seems to be intuitively right. Um, now, you might think that's, that's also too weak because it doesn't tell you that the degree of belief in B should also be at least as high as the, the degree of belief in the conjunction of A1 and A2. But that's not a problem because though that doesn't tell you that, D does tell you that. I mean, uh, at least it does if the... Uh, Logic in, in, in includes the obvious and rules. Um, uh, uh, so when, when B is a consequence of A1 and of A2, it's also a consequence of their conjunction. So we get both of these things. Okay, so here I'm just repeating D to have it there on the screen. Uh, um, Note that it's quite neutral to the underlying logic, uh, and thus it employs much less than the full principles of Bayesianism. So, so Bayesianism, for one thing, requires the logic to be classical. It, 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 it requires that classical logical truths get degree of belief. One, um, so D says that whatever logic is correct, the degree of belief in B should be related to those of A1 through AN, as, in, uh, as indicated. Um, now, um, if you add classical logic in, you get further claims. So, for instance the law of excluded middle will then be easily seen together with D to give you that um, um, the 
degree of belief in A and in not A add to at least one. And the, um, the principle that contradictions entail everything will easily be seen to give you that the degree of belief in A and in not A can't be more than one. So, so, so together, those two principles give you that uh, the degree of belief in not A should be one minus the degree of belief in A. Um, there are, however, non-classical logics which don't have these rules, and uh, uh, so D, D holds generally, even though those principles of Bayesian probability theory don't hold. Um, and in fact, even even having full classical logic doesn't, uh, together with D, doesn't give you the full Bayesian prin- principles. For instance, one Bayesian principle is uh, D plus uh, on, on the overhead, um, which is a, a tighter constraint than D imposes. Um, uh, but that tighter bound is a special feature of Bayesian theories. There are other classical logic theories, such as the uh, Dempster-Schaefer theory, that don't give you that, but, but, but they do still accord with uh, principle D. So the idea was to have a weaker principle here. Um, also, I should say that my remark above about people not having degrees of belief in every proposition shows that even though, uh, even though if we assume that people do have degrees of belief in everything, D plus is stronger than D, uh, given that we don't have that, D gives information in cases where, where uh, D plus doesn't. Um, because, so the N equals two case of D has the tacit condition that the per person has degrees of belief in A1, A2, and in B, but D plus has the tacit condition that the person has degrees of belief not only in these, but also in A1 or A2, and often one will have degrees of belief in A1 and A2, but not have a degree of belief in their disjunction. So uh, D actually gives information that D plus does when you take that into consideration. All right, enough on problem three. Let's go to the problem two of clutter avoidance. Um, um, uh, it would be bad, a bad thing to clutter up one's brain with 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 um, with boring consequences of one's beliefs. Uh, the the obvious solution, as Herman himself noted, is to distinguish between explicit belief and implicit belief. So. Explicit beliefs are ones that are directly stored in your head, and you implicitly believe something when you're disposed to explicitly believe it should the question arise. So, if we go back to the original star, the way to change it would be something like what I have here is double star. If A went through A and together obviously entailed B, then one ought to see to it that one that if one explicitly believes A1 through AN, then one at least implicitly believes B. 
Now that's fine when we have the original version, but how does it fit in with, with a degree of belief model, um, which I, I used in my preferred principle D? So, <clears throat> well, I've, I've mentioned the idea of generalizing standard Bayesian theory so that an agent needn't have a degree of belief in every sentence of her language. And at first sight, this might seem enough to solve the problem because an obvious addition is to make an explicit, implicit distinction among one's actual degrees of belief. So explicit degrees of belief are ones that are represented explicitly in the agent, and an implicit degree of belief is a disposition to have that degree of belief explicitly. Um, But it turns out that this isn't really enough to adequately solve the problem. The reason has to do with um, examples like, um, so, so suppose you have degree of belief half that the coin will come up heads on the next toss. Um, having that degree of belief explicitly doesn't mean that you have an implicit degree of belief in the sentence either the uh, the coin will come out heads or there will be war in Iran next year. I mean, um, uh, uh, presumably most of us don't have any uh, clear uh, degree of belief in that. Um, rather, one has a constraint on one's degrees of belief that it ought to be at least half, but one but that's much less than having a, a degree of belief. Um, okay, so, so that's a problem for for figuring out how to generalize our principle D, but I think it'll go away once we deal with the next problem. And this is really sort of, uh, well, it, 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 it's in the ballpark of problem four in, in that it concerns uh, computational uh, demands. Um, so standard discussions of degrees of belief totally ignore computational limitations. So uh, a, a minimal computational limitation is Turing computability. But no Bayesian probability function on a rich language is Turing computable, at least if it if it satisfies a very minimal condition of adequacy. So um, uh, uh, a rough but inadequate way to see the problem is to notice that um, uh, classical logical truths all have to have probability one in a uh, basic probability function, but by Churchill's theorem, classical logical truth is undecidable, so you might think that this uh, raises a problem. Well, actually, it doesn't quite raise a problem by itself, because um, um, all it means is that any computable probability function would have to assign uh, value one to things other than logical truths. But the idea of, of, the, of that bad argument can be uh, fixed up. 
I mean, it's easy to extend the proof of Church's theorem to show that any computable function on an arithmetic language that assigns value 1 to all logical truths must also assign value 1 to something inconsistent with uh, arithmetic. I mean, even a, a very weak arithmetic like um, uh, uh, Robinson. So any computable probability function would have to assign probability zero to a very weak fragment of arithmetic. So what's the conclusion? Well, I suppose somebody could conclude um, that nominalism solves the problem, but I don't recommend that view. Um, And uh, I also don't think it's a good idea to give up on Turing computability. What I think we should do is uh, is say that except in uh, highly idealized contexts, we shouldn't focus on probability functions. Well, what should we do instead? I mean, I think the spirit of Bayesianism can be kept even if we don't. What we should do instead is focus on certain probabilistic constraints. Uh, constraints such as that the conditional degree of belief in A given B is, is I, I didn't say this right in the handout. Uh, constraints involving such notions as Okay, I actually, it, it is okay uh, on the overhead if you in, in interpret it properly. There, 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 the, um, for certain claims A, B, C, and D, you will have constraints of the form, uh, the conditional degree of belief in A given B should be at least that of C given D. Um, so the point is, is the, 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 the constraints will involve the relations of probabilities and conditional probabilities and things like that. They won't just assign probabilities to sentences. So the idea is that it's, it's constraints such as these that we explicitly represent. I mean, I, I, Taken this is is fairly plausible. Often we have the view that two things are independent, even if we have no idea what the probability of each of them is. So that's a constraint of the form: the degree of belief in A and B is equal to the product of the degree of belief of A times the degree of belief in, in B. And and we also have have uh, 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 constraints of conditional independence and things of this sort. Um, So the process of thinking can impose new explicit constraints. Uh, So a new uh, theorem will be explicitly constrained to get value one in the future, even when it when that constraint didn't exist in the past. So 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 before it may have been constrained by logic to get value one, but only by a very unobvious proof. Um, 
at that point, the agent may not even implicitly believe the theorem to a high degree. Um, in fact, as in the case of the piano curve, he may uh, uh, um, uh, believe the uh, negation to a high, high degree. Uh, but then the process of, of thinking leads the explicit constraints to change, and uh, the implicit ones will constrained will change as well. Um, uh, and as in the case I, I, I mentioned a, a few overheads back, um, 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 the, the, so, in the case of the uh, of the disjunction, either the coin will come up heads on the next toss, or there will be war with Iran next year. Uh, this is a case where we will be implicitly constrained. Uh, uh, um, we will have an implicit constraint on our our uh, degrees of. of that isn't explicit, but the implicit constraint will be too weak to uh, 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 constitute an implicit. Uh, I shouldn't wave my hands. Uh, and uh, too weak to constitute an implicit degree of belief. All right. Well, it's it's once you have that, it's clear how to modify D to avoid the clutter avoidance problem, we just uh, uh, build the idea of uh, we, we make the explicit and implicit constraint for constraints on degrees of belief and we uh, shove it into D in the way I have it up there. Um, okay, now of course, what I've just said, I take it, is pretty much common sense. It, it's certainly not intended as a serious theory of, of how we operate with these constraints. But uh, for my purposes, it wasn't required that I give you a serious theory. Um, the point was to say why I think there's no problem in supposing that logic imposes a rationality constraint on our degrees of belief. Um, so D star is uh, at least roughly what I have in mind is the, is, is uh, what the rationality constraint should be. Um, um, so this, of course, avoids the excessive demands of logical closure and also the excessive demands of logical con- consistency. I mean, the constraints may well be probabilistically inconsistent, uh, but then an account of the updating procedure should, should be such that when the inconsistency is brought to light, adjustments are made to try to eliminate it. <clears throat> and the story avoids these excessive demands without confining the normative requirements to cases where the logical relations are known by the agent. 
So, so the idea that is that the requirements are there whenever the entailments are obvious, even if the agent doesn't know that. Okay, this brings back the question, what counts as obvious? Um, so in my view, there's no general answer. It depends both on who's being assessed and who's doing the assessing. But I claim that this is no problem for using the notion in describing normative requirements because normative requirements are relative in both of these ways. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll have more on that actually not all, only in lecture five but actually a, a little more on that um, shortly today. Now Instead of using the notion of obviousness, we could list specific rules that we count as obvious and uh, insist that they impose obligations. So we could have uh, something of this form here. Uh, if B follows from A1 through AN by such and such a simple rule, then one ought to see to it that uh, same as before. So that would give a veneer of objectivity for better or worse, um, it, it would only impose obligation for simple inferences. Um, so even, even if complicated inferences can be obtained by putting together simple inferences, there's no uh, ob obligation to have your beliefs accord with the complex in inference. There's only an obligation to take the first step. And then if one does take the first step, then there's an obligation to take the second step. And if one takes that, there's an obligation to take the third. But uh, this kind of chain of, uh, uh, of potential obligations doesn't count as an obligation. Um, but in addition to that, I think that for typical proofs, we don't even have a long chain of potential obligations. Um, and that's because there's a distinction to be made between two kinds of obvious inference. I mean, I don't mean to say that, that this is a sharp distinction, but, but um, uh, uh, on the one hand, there are um, well, do the second one first. Um, in the case of inferences like that from A and B to A, it's, it, it's hard not to explicitly think of the conclusion when one thinks of the antecedent. But uh, in, in, in uh, uh, the case of some in, in inferences, it's like the inference from everything is A to T is A, um, for a specific A and T, well, the inference is obvious, but still, explicit belief in the conclusion based on explicit belief in the premise is atypical because first you have to have the specific T brought to your attention. And I think this is actually quite important in the epistemology uh, of, of, of proofs. I mean, famous proofs like Russell's disproof of naive comprehension are incredibly short but they uh, remained unobvious for a long time simply because uh, you have to think of the right uh, thing to instantiate. 
Um, so if you're going to, uh, well, okay, so this actually poses a slight complication in, in the rule, in, in the form that I had it before, when, it, when you move from doing it in terms of, of obvious entailment to doing it in terms of entailment by specific rules. Um, uh, well, actually, I don't really need this slide. I just wanted to say that I think as far as the epistemology of proofs go, this point that I just made is quite important. For hard proofs, it's quite typical that they not simply be long proofs, but that they do have these kinds of steps within them that are that are obvious, but only obvious once one uh, thinks of the right examples. All right. Let me turn to one final uh, aspect of what I have as the fourth problem. Um, so the question is, should the facts of logical implication impose an obligation on even on those people who don't accept the logic? Um, um, and in particular on those who have serious, even though not ultimately correct reasons for not accepting the logic. So on a natural interpretation of the principle, which uh, these are the principles are on, on the handout, uh, these star and these star old. Um, on a natural interpretation, the obligations come from the simple rules of the correct logic. Now, that dictates a yes answer to the question at the top of the overhead. Um, but there's a case to be made that this is the wrong answer. I mean, suppose classical logic is in fact correct, but that somebody has made a very substantial case for weakening classical logic. Indeed, let's suppose that no advocate of classical logic has yet come up with the, an adequate response to X's case against classical logic. Um, and suppose that X usually reasons in accordance with the non-classical logic that he's come to advocate, but occasionally he slips and reasons classically in a way that is not justified by the logic that he has persuasively put forward. I mean, it kind of seems intuitively that it's when he slips in reasons classically that he's violating rational norms, uh, whereas um, uh, on this natural interpretation of, uh, of the principle, um, it's the other way around. So what should we say about this? So one response is to switch to another interpretation of, of the principle. Um, 
The other interpretation is that we shouldn't take the principle to involve a, a normative constraint by the correct logic, but rather by the agent's logic. Um, or, or, or alternatively, by the logic that the agent has the most reason to accept. Um, so that's kind of a relativist response. It, it removes the normative pull of reasoning in accord with the correct logic when, when, when that logic is at odds with the logic that one accepts or has most reason to accept. Well, is this a good idea? Um, the McFarlane quote that I had earlier suggests, uh, I think, a serious discomfort with it. So paraphrasing uh, the earlier quote uh, a little bit, you could say, well, this looks backward. We seek logical knowledge so that we know how we ought to revise our beliefs, not just how we will be obligated to revise them when we have the correct logical theory, but how we are obligated to revise them even now in our state of logical error. All right, so let's consider a second response which McFarlane himself advocates in this paper that I mentioned. Um, the second response is that there, there is an obligation to reason in accordance with the correct logic, but there can also be competing obligations. Uh, in the case of those with serious reasons for doubting what is in fact the correct logic, these competing obligations are quite strong, so there's simply no way to satisfy all of one's obligation until one corrects one's mistaken views about the logic. Um, so this idea of considering competing obligations rather than an undifferentiated notion of overall <coughs> obligation uh, seems to allow uh, oh, sorry, I, I skipped the slide with the Fregean view but Frege thought of, of logic as the laws of rational thought um, um, and, and so, so 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 McFarlane's idea is to contact one facet of, of rationality to logic. Um, it doesn't say anything about the other facet. Um, so I, I guess I'm more sympathetic to the McFarlane view than to the first view, uh, but, um, but I think the first view also has a certain aspect of correctness. Um, and I think this is to some extent predicted by my preferred version of, of the normative constraint. Uh, it began, if A went through A and together obviously entailed B, then one ought to see to it that blah, blah, blah. Uh, and on one reading of obviously, namely obviously to the agent, we would get a response like the first. And on the other reading, um, Obvious to someone with the correct logic, or, or, or maybe just obvious to me, <coughs> who has a, a logic that I believe to be correct, uh, we would get a response like the second one. Uh, 
Um, so, really, I think it's it, it's not that there's an ambiguity in the notion of obvious. Rather, obvious is a normative notion. Um, uh, uh, to call an inference obvious is say that the person in question ought to recognize the entailment. Um, so I think we evaluate primarily by the evaluator's norms, but sometimes by the agents. So our principle yields both interpretations without any ambiguity. Um, okay, so here, this slide... Um, um, does something rather quickly that will make more sense after this fifth lecture. But but um, so I've been talking like a normative realist in this discussion. Um, the question has seemed to have been what are the objective normative constraints that logic imposes? But there's an alternative view I prefer, and its core is that first, the way to characterize what it is for a person to employ a logic is in terms of norms that the person follows, norms that governs the person's degrees of belief by directing that those degrees of belief accord with the rules licensed by that logic. Um, so, so to be slightly more specific, we, we recast the principle I had before uh, in, um, as, as, as roughly E. So adhering to a logic L involves trying to bring it about for the simple inferences A1 through AN uh, to be licensed by the logic, or or at least the simple ones that are brought to one's attention, that if one's explicit constraints, heroin, you get the idea. Um, so you characterize what it is to follow a logic in terms of your degrees of belief. Um, tending to accord with it. And then we get a kind of normativity derivatively by principle two here that in, in external, externally evaluating somebody's beliefs and inferences, we go not just by what norms the person follows, but also by what norms we take to be good ones. We, we will use our logic in one facet of the evaluation though we may use the agent's logic in another. So, note that this doesn't connect up actual oughts with the actually correct logic, but it, it connects ought judgments with what we take to be good logic. But my suggestion, and this I will talk about in the fifth lecture, my, my suggestion is that there are no actual oughts that this leaves out. Uh, normative language is to be construed expressivistically, so we, 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 we project from the, uh, 
from the norms that we take to be good ones. Uh, and so construe the normative principles in the form that I had them earlier will turn out to be correct, but but, uh, rather than being principles about objective norms, they'll be seen as something like an epiphenomenon of the principles about what it is to adhere to a logic (coughs) together with uh, 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 the evaluative practices um, indicated in two above. <clears throat> um, so uh, these evaluative practices allow the consideration of both our own logic and the other person's in evaluating the other person's belief. And that, I think, was the best resolution of the last aspect of public before. Okay, as I, I said, the last part of that I realize will be a little bit uh, difficult to take in. It, it, uh, um, it, it really um, is closely connected with some things I'll talk about in the lecture. <clears throat> so I guess I've got, what, about five minutes left? Or, um, so maybe I will try to do then a little bit more of part two. So just to remind you where we are in this, um, uh, Harmon proposed an alternative to the idea that logic has a normative role, namely that logic is the science of what forms of argument necessarily preserve truth. Well, I, I, I partly sketched at the start um, um, some reasons to be suspicious about that based on based on a semantic paradox that I didn't really explain, but I I, I told you what is you, is is pretty universally accepted to be the right conclusion from that. Um, but here rather than uh, here here let me add add something to that. Um, um, again, for 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 related reasons, I want to argue that we must reject the claim that all logically valid inferences preserve truth. Um, and uh, so, if we're to do that, then there really isn't very much left uh, but to try to characterize uh, logic in a normative way, uh, namely in the way that I do. Okay, so rather than trying to motivate this from the semantic paradoxes, let me try to motivate it from something not completely unconnected with that, namely Gödel's second incompleteness theorem. So as most of you know, I'm sure, uh, it says, roughly speaking, that, that no remotely adequate mathematical theory can prove its own consistency or even its own non-triviality. And uh, that can seem puzzling because 
you might think that we, we can prove the consistency of a mathematical theory T within T by first proving within T that T is sound, that is, that all its theorems are true, and secondly, by arguing from the soundness of T to the claim that T is consistent. Um, now, except in the case of completely uninteresting theories, the problem is always going to be within, inductively proving within T that T is sound. But the question arises, well, why can't we do that? Why can't we argue that all the axioms are true and that the rules of inference preserve truth and then by an in, in induction, if we can do those, it would seem that we could argue that all the theorems are true. Well, of course, for standard mathematical theories, the answer is obvious why we can't do this. Uh, standard mathematical theories have only defined truth predicates. And uh, that is you can't define a general truth predicate. So you can't even formulate the premises of, of that ar- argument, let alone prove them. You can't even formulate the claim that all the axioms are true and that the rules of inference preserve truth. Um, but, of course, that's enough to preclude identifying valid inferences with the necessarily truth-preserving ones. I mean, even if you can get a surrogate for the notion of necessity here, you don't have a notion of truth, so you can't identify validity with uh, necessary truth preservation. Um, when, um, let's see, I think I want to go through the last part of this slide. Um, um, uh, uh, Tarski famously defined logical consequence. Um, he also famously showed the un- undefinability of the notion of truth. How did he do it? Well, he came up with a surrogate of truth, namely truth in a model, and also of uh, uh, necessary truth, and, and, and he identified validity not with necessary truth preservation, but with preserving truth in all models. But it's very important to realize that the notion of truth in a model is very, very different from the notion of truth. Um, well, I, I have two reasons up here, and I guess I will go through it. So first, non-classical logicians agree that classical inferences preserve truth in classical models, but they don't agree that they preserve truth. They think that classical models misrepresent reality. So that's the first reason. And the second reason is that even classical logicians think that classical models misrepresent reality. I mean, models here um, in in the sense in which Tarski defined truth in a model and, and define validity in terms of it, models are things that have sets as their domains. There's no no domain consisting of all sets, so there's no model that corresponds to reality. So, so, um, so the claim that an inference 
preserves truth in M for all models M doesn't entail that it preserves truth. Um, so um, um, if you just go by Tarski's definition, uh, uh, there's no requirement that valid inferences preserve truth. Now, so I've been talking about Tarski-like theories that... Oh, um, all right, let me go through uh, two slides and then I'll stop. Um, the, so I've been talking about classical theories that insist on uh, um, uh, defining any truth predicates they have, but what if we introduce a, a general truth predicate as a primitive? Uh, in that case, the paradoxes mean we have a choice. We can either have a classical logic theory in which truth obeys unusual laws, or we can have a non-classical logic that it keeps the usual laws of truth. But whichever way we go on that, it's always going to either be impossible to argue that all the axioms are true, or impossible to argue that all the rules preserve truth. And it's not just because of the all in there. There will be specific axioms that we can't argue to uh, um, uh, or true or specific rules that we will argue uh, that we can't argue to preserve truth. So let me just give one example um, which is a classical truth value gap theories. Um, I think other examples are, are actually more in, in interesting but they take longer to explain so I won't. But in, um, so a, a typical truth value gap theory will in, include every sentence of the form if A is true then A as an axiom. But it, it's um, it can be shown that they'll also include as a theorem some claim of the form it's not true that if A is true then A. Uh, so, 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 so belief in the axiom is licensed. The axiom is taken to be valid in the normative sense but it's uh, declared untrue. Okay, well I think actually this is the um, that's about the least attractive kind of uh, true theory that you can have in the, in the more attractive one when the problem is put with the, with the truth of preservation of rules rather than uh, of the axioms ag- and it, it can be argued that it's actually less less destructive than it might at first seem to uh, to to uh, declare uh, your rules not to be generally truth preserving because you can consistently believe at least that they preserve truth when it matters um, but uh, um, I 
I mean, I can talk about it in the question period if, if people want. But um, uh, just as the final slide, uh, one could, of course, simply define valid to mean necessarily truth-preserving, or in the case of axioms, uh, necessarily true. But this doesn't get you around the main point, because the point is that these theories give a special positive status to, in the case of the gap theories, uh, 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 claims of the form, if A is true, then A, even while declaring some of them untrue. So, um, um, so anyway, so it's it's the uh, it's the normative. Uh, <clears throat> so to sum up in a sentence, basically any any uh, uh, theory of truth is going to give a positive normative status to some axioms or some rules which it declares to be not true or not truth-preserving. I mean, and I myself prefer the ones which don't locate the problem with the axioms, but only with the rule. So, so they will accept certain rules of in inference, but declare them to not preserve truth, though they may well, the ad, ad, ad advocate may well believe that the failures to preserve truth only come when applied to uh, pathological premises that the person never accepts. Uh, okay, I'll stop there. Thank <laughs> you.